chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I'd love for you to be able to see where we're at and be able to follow along. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home with you. Uh, We really want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God, and if you didn't before, you do now. That one's yours. We'd love for you to take that one home. Um, Like I said, we're starting a practice series today uh, called Developing a Rule of Life. So let me just briefly explain both of those things. First of all, practice series uh, is something that we do a couple times each year at York Alliance that is um, really devoted to doing the Word of God. It's it's very practical and very pragmatic. You still learn. We're still going to be grounded in the Scriptures, but rather than continuing to preach through Exodus, we'll get back to that right after Easter. Uh, Through the Lenten season, through Easter, we're going to to do this practice of developing a rule of life. And that may be foreign words to some of you. You've probably never heard that term rule of life before. Um, I I should say a couple things that it's not, first of all. Uh, It's not rules, plural, for life. Uh, It's not uh, rules that you need to follow. Uh, If you know me at all, you know that I'm not really big on rules anyway. And so like some of you, I tend to push back a little bit against rules. This is not that kind of a rule. This is a, a, a way to structure our life. So Um, I want to explain it to you uh, with a story to start with, hopefully one that will stick with us as we uh, go through the the, the season. Um, Some of you know we recently moved into a house in West York, and our neighbors next door had also just moved in uh, a couple weeks before us, and they have several dogs, and they needed a larger fence. So they had a little fence, but they needed a larger one, and so they had a contractor come in and start building. And so if, if you've ever been beside a house that's being built or a fence that's being built or a roof that's being built. It sounds kind of like that, right? It's like this annoying noise that's just like, it, it has no rhythm to it. It's just like constantly just pounding. So like seven o'clock in the morning, every morning just like starts pounding. I'm like, who can pray through this, right? It's terrible. It's just this loud racket. Well, it, it got me thinking that the difference between noise and music is actually relatively minor. The the difference between noise and music isn't really the sounds. It's a lot more of the space between the sounds and the way the sounds repeat, and in that repetition, the kind of rhythm that they have. And so what starts out as just annoying sounds, after a while, becomes music. That idea of those noises in our life through repetition and rhythm and space, becoming something that begins to speak to us and speak to the world around us. That's the heart of rule of life. Thank you, Deb. Way to go. Yes, thank you. Awesome. She was saying between services, you know how hard it is for a drummer to not play on rhythm? Like, that's like so, like, like that's so difficult. Thank you for making music out of noise. We appreciate it. That idea is one I hope will stick in your head as we journey through this series, because developing a rule of life is really all about creating that kind of rhythm. Let me give you a definition. This is from Stephen Machia, and uh, as he speaks to developing a rule of life, he says it this way, a rule of life is a holistic description of the spirit-empowered rhythms and relationships that create, redeem, sustain, and transform the life God invites you to humbly fulfill for Christ's glory. That's a mouthful, but basically what he's saying is it's an overall structure that provides a rhythm to the way that we live our life before God, where we receive the love of God 
and have margin to give the love of God to the people around us. And most of us would say, uh, agreed in our head, but challenged in our lives. And so that's really the, the heart of the series, that we would begin to develop a rule that would help us individually begin to live in a way that allows the Spirit of God to transform us to uh, receive and give the love of God to the world around us. So that's going to be where we're going to be going, and we're going to spend several weeks working through the how. What's it look like to develop that? But today, just as a brief introduction, I want to start with the why. Why would we do this? In the midst of a busy, uncertain world with so much going on in the world around us, why would we pause and develop a rule of life? Why would we want to do that? So I'm going to ask you first to listen to uh, Proverbs chapter 4, one of the Proverbs from Proverbs chapter 4, and Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And so Deb is going to come and read for us. Proverbs 4:23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Matthew 6, 19 to 23. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Thank you, Deb. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we turn our hearts to your word, we ask you to speak and to use by your spirit your power to shape us. God, help us to hear from you, to be changed by you. And so, God, may any words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten. But instead, may the words that come from your spirit penetrate our hearts, change us, and make us more like you. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 10, Jesus makes a statement to his disciples. He says, I have come that you would have abundant life, or in some translations, life to the full. That there would be a, a fullness of life that would come out of us. A fullness of life that many of us, honestly, struggle to achieve, struggle to live into. That's the heart of what I want to talk about over the next six or seven weeks. And so what we're going to talk about today is uh, something called curating. Uh, that may be a new word for some of you, but we're going to talk about curating desires. What does it mean to curate our desires? And so we're going to look at the art of curating itself, and I'll explain what that is in just a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about knowing our own hearts and learning to operate within the space of our hearts. And then finally, what it means to curate our hearts. So the art of curating, knowing our hearts, and then curating our hearts. And so that brings us to uh, Proverbs chapter 4 uh, in verse 23. Uh, it, it said very simply, keep your heart with all vigilance. Now the first thing I want you to see is that the, the writer of the Proverbs, Solomon, is telling us in a command exhortation kind of way, 
keep your heart with all vigilance. He, he's not saying um, that your heart is, your emotions are what they are, your loves are what they are. He's actually saying that you and I have the responsibility to steward our loves, to steward our desires, that we're responsible to keep our heart with all diligence because from our hearts, from our, our emotions and our desires, our loves and our passions, flow the springs of life. Now, uh, that's, that's already a challenging thing for us to get our heads around, but if you pair that with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, um, th- there's this odd statement that he makes in verse 21, probably one that if you've been in church for a little while that you're familiar with, but maybe one that we need to relook at uh, the way that Jesus said it. So this is verse 21 in Matthew uh, chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, most of us, when we read that, even when we're taught that, we're taught some variation of this. Um, if you look at your bank account or you look at your checkbook or you look at your credit card statement, you look at your day planner or your iPhone or whatever you keep your calendar on, um, that's going to be the way that you know what you love. You, you, you spend according to what you love. You spend your time according to what you love. And so there's, there's a reflection of our loves in the way that we use the resources that we've been given. And that's, that's true from a humanity perspective. That's true about the human condition. You, if you evaluate the way that you spend your time and your money, you will see the things that you love in those, uh, the, the ways that you spend. But that's not what Jesus said. If that's what Jesus was trying to say, he would have said, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He would say, wherever your passions are, wherever your loves are, you'll find that you place your spending and your time and all of your resources behind your passions. But interestingly, that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus taught is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is giving us is, I would argue, one of the most underutilized processes of spiritual formation. Jesus is saying that you and I actually have the ability to change what we love by the way that we live. Where your treasure is, where you place your spending, where you place your focus, where you place your energies, there your heart will be also. So in the Proverbs, it says that we need to guard our hearts, that we need to be people who steward the hearts, the desires, the passions that we have. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, not just steward those desires, but actually cultivate those desires in a way that allows us to love the things that God loves. So this idea of curation, if you're familiar with that term at all, it's probably from the art world. Uh, In uh, in art, if there's going to be an art exhibit put up, someone is going to curate that exhibit. And that curation is basically an organization and structure that's given to that art exhibit to explain it to, to you by the way that you engage it. And so uh, a curator would go through and, uh, and establish, like, here's all the space that's available to me. Here's all of the, the pieces of art that I need to display. Now, what message do I want the, uh, the viewer to engage as they're going through? And so you're going to look at things like sight lines and traffic patterns. 
And there, there's certain space that's like the really, really good space, and there's certain pieces that are the really, really important pieces. And so a good curator is going to get the important pieces in the most important spaces so that when you come in, your eyes immediately drawn to the thing that you need to see in order to engage the message of that exhibit. It, you might say it this way, a curator is helping you treasure the most important things. They're, they're putting something in the right place so that you would be drawn to it and it would become more important to you. Jamie Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, which is an excellent book on spiritual formation, uh, Jamie Smith says this, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive and intentional about what you love. So stick with that metaphor for a second. If a curator is intentionally engaging the space in order to put the most important things in the right flow, in the right order so that you can engage it fully, curating your heart through the process of discipleship is saying that my intention is to, to pursue after Jesus. So that's not just knowing more about him, but that's placing in my life ways to engage his truth that cultivates my affections, my desires, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The goal of apprenticeship to Jesus, Jesus himself said, is being like him. It's a fascinating little parable that Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 6. Uh, you can go there on your own time if you want to do that. But Jesus, uh, it's, it's a two-verse parable. Jesus says, first, uh, what happens if a blind man leads another blind man? They fall into a pit. This is Jesus telling a joke. It's not really PC, but it's, it's kind of funny, right? Like you picture blind guy leading another blind guy, like they don't know where they're going. Like it's, Jesus just telling a joke. He's like, that, that's not going to be good, right? Instead, you need to pay attention to who you're following, who, who's leading you. And then he makes this profound statement. An apprentice, when fully trained, will be like his master. A disciple when fully trained, will be like his master. In the context of discipleship, what Jesus is saying is, you and I should have the expectation that our lives are looking more and more and more like Jesus. That when I look at my life and I look back and I look forward, I'm seeing Christ-likeness formed in me, and I'm actually pursuing looking like him. Now, for some of us, we think like, oh my goodness, that's like so far beyond where I am right now. Right, that's, that's okay, but it's the path that you're on. Discipleship, the, the goal, the, the end goal of discipleship is that we would be like Jesus. So if that's the case, flip it around the other way. Discipleship, or whatever we're doing that we would call discipleship, that doesn't form Christ in us is not achieving its intended goal. So if whatever you're doing, whatever the rhythm of your life is, so whether that's going to church or having a quiet time or, or, or being connected to the people you're connected to or whatever it is, if you're doing those things as part of your rhythm of life and you're not becoming more like Jesus, there's something wrong in the process because discipleship is intended to make us more like him. Now I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in a second, but that's the process of curating for us to begin to uh, place the right things in the right spaces so that we would start to become more like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, first we have to know our hearts. So a curator, the first thing a curator is going to do is walk into a space and understand the space that he or she has to work with. 
And so uh, evaluate how, what size walls do I have? How much floor space do I have? What's the traffic flow look like? What do the sight lines look like? So that they know where they put the right things in order to create the right flow. In the same way, you and I need to curate, know our hearts. And the, the way that we know our hearts is first to begin to identify the idols and the disordered loves that are driving us, the things that are not like Jesus within us. Now, I'm not saying that we need to figure out every single sin in our life. We need to do a full confession and then like start from scratch. What I am saying is that if you find areas of your life, passions rising up in areas of your life that are not like him, there's something that you've treasured that's creating that. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you find something coming out of your heart and you think, whoa, I don't know where that came from. I don't like that. I, I reacted in anger or I, 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 I had this terrible thought in my head or I had this terrible action that came out of me. Where did that come from? Jesus is saying there's something that you've treasured at some point along the way that has brought your heart to that place. So last week, Kevin did an excellent job in Exodus chapter 15, walking us through the idea of worship and idols and the way that we engage with uh, idol worship and how that translates to today. And he gave us some uh, lists of ways to think through that. I want to throw a list out to you as we begin to evaluate where our loves are disordered. Let me just throw a couple questions at you. Uh, first one is this. When you look at other people, what brings about jealousy? Like what, what creates jealousy in your heart? That thing that you're jealous of, that's pointing you towards a disordered love. Or um, what creates uh, insecurity in you? When, when you go out in the world and you're insecure about something, what's that thing that you're insecure about? That insecurity is pointing to a disordered love. Same thing is true for what brings shame, what brings a sense of failure, those are things that are pointing to disordered loves, idols that are in our lives. The desire to quit, frustration, anger, all of those things are emotions that come out of our loves being disordered. It's, it's placing our treasure in the wrong space. And Kevin did an excellent job of bringing us to Exodus 15, verse 2. Uh, so let me just read it again for you. It says this, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It's, it's a fascinating parallel because uh, the strength and the song of the Lord, the, the people of Israel knew, but it wasn't until they experienced something where he became their salvation. There's a, a process where we move from saying, I know theoretically that Jesus is the most important thing in the world. I know that my life should be ordered around him. It's a great difference between that and loving Jesus as ultimate, being completely in love with him and having that love cloud and capture everything in my life. That love is Jesus becoming my salvation, having it sink from just a knowledge of God into a deep desire for God. And the difference is that our loves need to change. The, the way that that works is shifting our treasure so our love changes. Michael Hendricks, in his book, The Other Side of the Church, Other Half of the Church, sorry, says this, we love Jesus and we will obey. When we do not love Jesus, we will not obey him. Pretty simple, right? 
Like the areas where I'm walking in step with Jesus, it's because I'm loving him in those areas. What's drawing me is an attachment to him. And when I find myself disobeying Jesus, it's because I love something else more than him. It's very simple. It's love that drives our action. And that's just not Michael Hendricks. Jesus himself said that in uh, John chapter 14. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Jesus was really clear that attachment, that if, if we receive the love that he has for us and we attach to him by loving him back, there will be a connection that we have that allows us to walk in obedience to him. The tie of the love that we have for Jesus and the love that he has for us is the tie of obedience. So how do we develop that kind of love? How do, how do we get there? That's the process of curating our hearts. So just real quickly, let me try to walk through a brief overview. This is where we'll be over the next several weeks. What, what, what supports and develops love for Jesus in, in your life? You, you have an answer to that. I, I have an answer for me, but all of our answers to that is a little bit different. So like I was talking to somebody earlier who was just talking about how worship music just draws his heart in. And when he just spends time in wor- with worship music, there's just a, a softening of his heart where he's drawn into his heart. Well, that's, that's wonderful. But for some of you, you're like, that's not my deal at all. Like, I'd like it to be quiet, really. I would like, just stop. Uh, what I'd like to do is sit and read or sit and pray. And for some of you, like, sitting in the corner and reading and praying sounds like, a, like what you're forced to do in elementary school when you're bad. And so you're like, I'm not doing that. Like, I want to go, like, go talk to people. I want to go serve people. I want to go have coffee with people and go to parties. And, like, we're all wired a little bit differently. But, but you know what stokes in you a love and passion for Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so uh, curating your heart is all about placing the right things in the right spaces, the the premium times in your life, so that you can uh, fully engage the love of Jesus, that you have time to be able to fully engage the love of Jesus, which is all well and good except for the fact that most of us have not learned anything new so far. Our lives are just too busy to make it work. Right, like if, if you talk to people on the way into church today, you probably already had this conversation. On the way in, you'll say to somebody, hey, it's good to see you, how you doing? And they'll answer something like this. Oh, I'm good, just busy, right? Everybody's just busy. Like, like my kids are busy. Like I'm busy, college students are busy, older people are busy, like everybody's busy. Everybody's got all kinds of stuff going on. And some of it's actually important, most of it's not really that important, but it's busy. It's full. Our, our calendars are packed full. Uh, Dallas Willard, in a meeting with uh, somebody he was mentoring, m- made this statement. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life today. Now, if you and I were going to make a list of the things that were the enemy of the spiritual life, how many would like have hurry make the top 10? Because I would not be there, right? Like there'd be a lot of other things that I would see as the great enemy of the spiritual life. We live in a crazy society with lots and lots of stuff that pulls us away from God. Hurry? And yet it makes tons of sense because what Willard's saying is if you don't have space in your life to treasure what's most important, your heart will never get there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For so many of us, we just swim in the water of busyness. 
And that would be bad enough, except that busyness for a lot of us actually ties far deeper than just our schedule being full, far deeper than the fact that I don't have extra hours in the day. It actually goes to a, a deep identity thing. So we, we wouldn't maybe say these words out loud, but we feel it like this. I'm busy because I'm important. That's why my schedule's so full. Because I have so many things to do because I'm a really important person. And I, I, I know that people need me, and so that's why I'm so busy. And when I'm not busy, all of a sudden I no longer feel important, and my identity starts to shift. Or maybe I, I'm, I'm busy because I'm needed. I, I'm needed by a lot of different people. Like I have kids that need me and I have uh, friends that need me and I have parents that need me and I have uh, people around me that need me and all of those people that need me, they fill my calendar and that's why I'm busy. And if I'm not busy, maybe I'm not actually needed. Busyness gets at our identity. Eugene Peterson had a different way of looking at busyness. He said, uh, the identity of busyness is you're busy because you're lazy. Now, that seems uh, kind of direct, but listen to the way that he says it. I'm busy because I'm lazy. I indolently let others decide what I will do instead of resolutely deciding myself. It was a favorite theme of C.S. Lewis that only lazy people work hard. I love that. By lazily abdicating the essential work of deciding, directing, establishing values, and setting goals, other people do it for us. What Peterson's saying is this, if you and I don't step in to direct our own lives, there are plenty of people in the world who would like to direct our lives for us. One of the things we talk about as it relates to spiritual formation all the time is that you are being formed whether you intend to be formed or not. You're being formed by a culture around you, you're being formed by the people around you. Whether you've intentionally engaged spiritual formation or whether it's just happening to you, spiritual formation is happening. So what do we do? Well, we have to take the steps that are necessary to begin to order our lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a lot needs to go. We'll talk about this a lot more next week. There are some times that we need to prune things back, and there are other times that things uh, can continue to be where they are, but they need to be ordered correctly. They need to have structure to them. And for many of us, that that idea still is not difficult. It's not a, a brand new idea. We just don't do it. We, we don't do the work that we know that we're called to do. So um, here's your quote from Dallas Willard that will convict you as it's convicted me. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would easily make it a reality. The challenge of what Willard's saying is really simple. You and I can, we have all that we need at our fingertips to structure our lives around the glory of Jesus. Jesus said so clearly, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have the ability to make those decisions. It can't happen overnight. I've looked ahead at my schedule this week, and I am disobeying my own message already this week. I'm just going to be bad news, I can tell you. 
it's not going to happen overnight. There are changes that need to happen over a period of time, but we can make those changes. We can be people who curate our hearts to give space to what we need to give space to in order to cultivate a love for Jesus. Because we know what drives the love for him. We know what stokes our passions for Jesus. And so we need to give ourselves space for those things to happen. And so this week, really simple, as we, we, we're going to jump in really deeply to this idea over the course of the next uh, month or so. But for this week, you have a really simple practice. It's in your practice guide. So um, the, the way these practice guides work is uh, there are specific exercises in here, uh, some to do within community and some to do on your own. If you don't have a community group right now or a group of Christians that you can walk with, this is a great time to jump in because you can be doing this along with them. And so I'll encourage you to uh, look on our website if you want to plug in or just gather together a group of Christians that you're going to journey with through the Lenten season and uh, can walk with you through this. But, but the practice is really simple. Uh, first, to just observe the pace of your life. What you're going to observe, most likely, for almost all of us, is that you're moving way too fast. There's all kinds of ways that we are just hurrying. We are uh, constantly trying to get into the short line at the grocery store and trying to make sure that we are, are changing lanes so that we have fewer cars in front of us at the red light. And, you know, we just do all that stuff because just me? I don't know. I do that stuff. Uh, I think some of you do it too. Um, just observe the pace at which you're moving. Like there, there, you're going to find that your pace is fast. And then start to look at the rhythms of your life. We'll look down the line at what kind of love they're generating. But one of the things you'll find is there are certain rhythms to the way that you live your life, the way you get up in the morning, the way that you go to bed at night, the things that you do throughout the day, uh, rhythms that happen each week throughout the week. Those rhythms shape us. And so the call is simply to evaluate those things. And then over the next several weeks, we'll begin to unpack some of those things. Um, but as we wrap up, I want to speak to what um, today and probably throughout the series will be the major objection that some of you are going to feel in your heart. Some of you are already feeling it right now, so I'll just speak right to it. Which is, um, if you have been raised in the evangelical church and you've spent a lot of time in a church like York Alliance, your initial reaction is, Okay, that's, that's very pragmatic, and maybe it would help, but isn't that works righteousness? Aren't, you, aren't we just working for the favor of God? Uh, in fact, you might, you might say it this way. It seems like you're calling us to do a lot of stuff, but I thought Jesus has already done everything. That's a, a, a really a popular way to say it with evangelicalism. And, and I appreciate that idea. It's one of the reasons why, as I was processing through it, I've had to process through that as well. And, and here's the way I would respond to that. First of all, um, I, I would never want anyone to hear that anything that we do in spiritual formation earns us anything before God. He has already given us everything. And there's nothing that you can do. You can have the most beautiful rule of life ever created. You can be the most disciplined person ever. You still do not earn your way into the presence of God. The only way that you and I are invited into the presence of God is through grace by faith. That's it. And Paul says it so clearly. He says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And even that faith is a gift of God so that nobody can boast. So you didn't even do that. Like even the faith itself to believe is given to you by God. And so there, there's a, a, an earning that has already been done on your, on your behalf. But what Jesus does when he 
saves us is he invites us in and our actions are a response to his invitation. So when Jesus invites us to be his disciples, he says, come and follow me, we get the choice to respond to that or not. And that choice is a response to his invitation. It's not work that earns us anything, but it's effort, sometimes a lot of effort, to align our hearts with God and to walk with him. And so one of the reasons I wanted to do this series now, over the Lenten season, is that every week during Lent, we will come back to the communion table and we'll celebrate together the body and the blood of Jesus. And that act of communion, among all of the different things that it is, is an invitation. Communion is an invitation to us into a way of life. And this is what I mean. When you go and receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, what you're being called to do is to live according to that reality. To live as though your sins are forgiven because they are. To live as though you've been accepted into the family of God because you have been. To live as though Jesus has done all the work on your behalf because he has. And now we're called to go live in that way. It's what Jesus called living in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens. There's an invitation into a different way of life. And so communion, among all of the things that it is, is an invitation into that way of life, that we would go from here having received, and we would go and start to live. And so each week, as we talk about the way that our lives are formed, we're going to come back to communion as a centerpiece, that invitation of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus into a way of living. So for today, I'm going to ask those of you who are serving to come to the front and to get the elements and to take them around the room. So as they move, they're going to have elements, I, I believe, in five different places around the room, three across the front and two in the back. And you're going to have an opportunity to go and to receive. And, and as you do, let me just uh, briefly tell you that story once again. Because at the very end of Jesus' life, when he... Uh, pulled his disciples together in their final celebration of the Passover meal. And as he was passing the bread around, he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you, which had to be shocking to them because those weren't the right words. That's not what you were supposed to say right then. This is my body broken for you. And then he said, as often as you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the third cup of the evening, the cup of redemption, had a very specific meaning and a very specific process to it. And instead of following those words, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that's poured out for many. He was referencing the prophets and the promise of this new covenant that would replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that we would uh, begin to love him by his spirit that is at work within us. This is a new covenant in my blood poured out for many. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And since then, for the last 2,000 plus years, when the church comes back to the communion meal, it's an invitation into the Jesus life that we would live knowing he is sacrificed for us. His body has been broken. His blood has been shed. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited. 
whatever your church affiliation is or whatever your connection here to York Alliance is, you're invited to come to these stations to receive, to remember. As you come, a piece of bread will be placed in your hands. You'll be able to take a cup. And as you eat and drink, remember the body of Jesus broken, the blood of Jesus shed. You'll see uh, baskets along the front of all of the pews uh, in the back section and the front section. If you just want to drop your cups in there, that would be a help to us. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me say two things to you. The first one is uh, you're welcome here. We're really glad that you're here. My encouragement is for you not to come to one of these stations. And the reason is really simple. Um, This is a covenant statement that says, I'm following after Jesus. And so if you're not in that place of being ready to follow after him yet, I would simply ask that you don't move. That's, that's fine. There's going to be a ton of movement. Nobody's going to single you out in the process. But, but the other thing I want you to know is you, you are completely invited. There is nothing that you could do or can do to earn the love of Jesus, which means, on the other side, there's nothing you could have done that disqualified you from the love of Jesus. Like, it, wherever you're at, he loves you right where you are, and you're invited. So there are going to be some prayers that will be on the screen. The first one will simply say, Jesus, tell me more. I, I don't understand. I'm not ready to follow you yet because I'm not even sure I get this. And if that's where you are, uh, those aren't magic words, but I just would encourage you to pray through that and just ask God, show me. He'll be faithful. Show me that this is true. The second prayer is one that says, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I I maybe haven't said that specifically or I haven't taken that step of faith in an intentional way, but today I'm ready to do that. And so there are words that will help you to to pray that prayer, but they're not magic words. You can pray however that your heart is led in that way. Um, If you pray that prayer, I would invite you to come and to celebrate communion. Come and receive the body and the blood of Jesus and remember that's true. But I would also ask that you tell somebody because we need each other in the journey um, we need you to journey with us, and you need us to journey with you. And so don't do it alone. As you make that commitment, let us know, and let us walk with you and uh, invite you to walk with us. Final thing I want to say is if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life that you have said, this is off limits to you. Not that you're struggling with. We're all struggling in lots of ways. But if there's an area you said, Jesus, you're not welcome in this area, I would encourage you to not go to one of the communion stations, but rather to take this time to bring your heart before God. Say, God, what is it that I'm loving and desiring and pursuing that is so opposite of you that I'm not willing to submit my heart to you? And so if that's where you are, I would just invite you to take this time to bring your heart before the Lord and to take advantage of the opportunity that you have. Throughout this time, as you move, you are always welcome to come to our altar rails at this side. uh, People will come and pray with you if you have a specific need, if you want to be anointed for healing, or if you just want someone to pray with you. We'd love to be able to do that here at this side. Um, As you go over there, you'll just be left alone. You'll have some time to meet with God on your own. And so if uh, that's helpful to you, you're welcome to use those times. As Jesus gave his life for us, it was an invitation into the abundant life fullness of life. And he wants to lead us into that. And so this is an invitation. Would you pray with me as we come to the table? Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the grace of gathering together and uh, the, the joy of celebrating the new life that you give to us. Jesus, we receive it from you. And as we come to the table, would you by your spirit meet us, speak to us, and shape our hearts according to your image. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.